0: All right, so right now we are in the middle of a series uh, going through the life of David. And what we've tried to make clear throughout the series is that when we talk about David, we don't want to just stop with David. Even though this series is grounded in the life of David, we always want to be looking past David to Jesus. All right, when God shows us David in the Old Testament, that David as God's anointed as the Messiah, as the Savior of Israel, he is pointing forward to, he's always showing us the greater Messiah the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And so we never just stop and look at David. We always look past David to the greater David who is Jesus, which means then that these stories, and I know this is disappointing for some of you, are not about you, and they're not about me. These aren't stories that we're supposed to look at and say, oh, wow, David, look at his great faith. If I just have faith like that, then I can move mountains, and I can, I can conquer giants, and I can be the king in my own world. No, the point of these stories is not so that you can be awesome. It's so that we can see that Jesus is awesome. You get it? We're not trying to be impressed with ourselves. We're not trying to make ourselves better people. That comes secondary. What we have to start with is seeing Jesus and being changed and moved by him. And so the point of these stories always as we're reading these stories about David is that we're looking for clues. We're looking for reflections. We're trying to get a glimpse, a better picture of who Jesus is because we want to be like him. We're not trying to be like David. We're trying to be like Jesus. We want to have his heart. We want to love what Jesus loves. We want to hate even what Jesus hates. We want to, our hearts to be broken by what breaks Jesus' hearts. Like David, we want to have hearts that follow after God's own heart. Now, here's why that's so important. Now, if we're going to have a relationship with God, if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to know him, then our hearts have to be aligned with Jesus' hearts. Our, our hearts have to be in, in sync with one another. And if you've ever been in a relationship, you get this. And hopefully all of you have been in a loving relationship of some sort, not just married, but with a really close friend or a spouse um, or a brother, or sibling, um, brother, sister, sibling, all of those are the same, um, with a parent, a grandparent. And you understand that if you're going to have a deep and intimate, meaningful relationship with someone, then you have to share those values. You have to have a shared heart. Because if otherwise, you're in danger of trying to build a relationship on something that could crumble. So for example, like when you're getting married, just use this for an example. Um, the reason that you guys have to have all those conversations... You have to have that counseling and you go around and you have all those questions, all those hard questions. Okay, how are we going to raise our kids? And and what do you want your life to be about? Well, I want to live in the north. I want to live in the south. And, and how are we going to raise our kids? And we're going to cheer for the cowboys or the eagles, right? All these really big life questions because you understand that if you don't have—your hearts are not in sync, if your heart don't have shared heart— shared priorities, what's most important to you, then you're in danger of trying to build a marriage on a foundation that can support an acquaintance. So if, if this is your foundation, the shared heart experience, that's like trying to build a skyscraper on a foundation that can support a shed in your backyard. And so I can have a friend um, who, who I care very much about. I can care deeply for them. I can hang out with them. But unless we have that shared heart then we don't do life together, not in the same way. You tracking with me? So if I've got a buddy who we have different worldviews, and he doesn't love God, and he doesn't cheer for the cowboys, and um, you know he thinks that monster truck rallies are the height of Western civilization, then while we can be friends, and I can love him, and I can appreciate him, we don't do life together. I would never marry anyone like that. Right? In the same way, if we want to have more than just a casual knowledge of God— If we are supposed to have an intimate, meaningful, deep relationship with God, then our hearts have to be aligned with his. Otherwise, I just kind of know about God, and I don't really know him. We have to have hearts after God's own heart. Not to mention the fact that when our hearts are aligned with God's heart, life works better. Okay, so if um, if I ignore the manufacturer about the purpose and how to care for my car, and I just, I kind of ignore the engine, but I keep putting all my money into this great speaker system. And so you can hear me coming down the road, you know the cars I'm talking about, it's like your heart starts beating and you can't even help it. You're right? So if I just take all my money, I'm like, no, that's all I care about. That's what I care about. That's my priority. That's what's most important to me. And I neglect the engine and I don't change the oil and I don't put the right fuel in, then my car breaks down. It's the same idea here that God, the manufacturer, the creator, he tells us, this is what you should love. This is what your heart should run after. This is what your heart should pursue. And so as I align my heart up with God's heart, then my life is going to work better. But when I don't, when I neglect the things that God says, this is what's most lovely, and I run after things that he says, ah, that's not really good for you, then my life breaks down. Our marriages fail, our friendships fail, our work fails. Society suffers, community suffers, and we suffer. And so our aim is always, like David, to have hearts that run after God's own heart. And so what I want to do this morning is look at this passage in First Samuel that I think challenges uh, what is often the status quo of our hearts. That our hearts very easily become callous to much of what breaks God's heart, and we need a realignment. All right, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to First Samuel. And we're going to be picking up in chapter 28. We're going to cover a lot of territory, so just try to hang with me as best you can. And, uh, but we're, we're going to cover quite a bit. It's just like six chapters. Don't worry. It's, it's like nothing. All right, 1 Samuel 28. Let's start at verse 3. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. I'm not sure if I'm saying that quite right, but here's what he's done. All right, so Samuel has died. This is important. You'll see why in just a, a little bit. And Saul, though, he's gotten rid of anyone who's associated with the occult. So witches and warlocks and all that kind of stuff in the underworld, supernatural, darkness, evil. He's gotten rid of all that. And that is an obedience. There's one thing Saul actually got right. This is an obedience to God's command back earlier in the law, earlier in the Old Testament. All right, so Saul has gotten rid of all these mediums and we'll call them witches and the necromancers and all this. All right, so here's, here's what comes next. And the Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. And when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And so what we learn here is that Saul has, for lack of a better word, he has a really big problem. The Philistines are coming after him. And this isn't like a little bitty skirmish. Like they've had little battles before, but this is the Philistines. They're all coming together and they are amassing together. I know it's kind of hard to see on the screen, but they're right here in Shunem. Now normally the Philistines hang out down here, but this time they've moved up here to Shunem and Saul is over here at Gilboa. And what they're essentially doing is they're cutting Saul off from reinforcements. They're cutting him off because the northern tribes are up here and they have all of their armies up there. And so Saul needs their help, but they're cutting him off and they're drawing him into a battle right here in the Jezreel Valley. And in the Jezreel Valley, they can use their chariots. And so when the Philistine army, in full power, with their chariots, takes on the Israelite army, not at full strength, without chariots, it's going to be a rout. And so Saul, he has big problems, really big problems. And he's very, very concerned, to say the least. He's terrified, but he's got a bigger problem. He's got a bigger problem. God isn't talking to him. Verse 6, And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. In other words, Saul has exhausted all of the avenues that he knows for hearing from God. Okay, so he's, he's looking to his dreams. He's like, okay, God, are you speaking to me through dreams? He doesn't get anything. And then he goes to the Urim. Now, the Urim and the Thur- Thumin, I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. These are basically two objects. We don't actually know what they were, but the high priest carried them. And in today's world, they probably look a lot like this. And so they would cast lots. And so the king would go to the high priest and he'd say, hey... Um, I need to inquire of God, he say, okay, what's your question? It needed to be a yes or no question. You ask the question, he'd cast lots, and if he got the same answer repeatedly, then that was God speaking to the high priest through the Urim and the Thumen. And so in this case, though, every time Saul rolls the die, he gets snake eyes. And then there's the problem of the prophets. Samuel's dead. He was the chief prophet, and the other prophets aren't getting any word from God. And then what about the priests who say, oh yeah, a couple of chapters back, Saul slaughtered all of them, so that's not helping him either. And so what we're supposed to understand from the text here is that this is God's judgment on Saul. That God says, Saul, you keep doing things your way. You keep taking matters into your own hands. You're not listening to me, so I'm going to quit talking to you. This is God's judgment Upon him, and so Saul pleads with God to speak to him, but God is silent, and in God's silence—he's abandoning Saul; he's leaving him to the Philistines. Now, when when you and I read this, um, it, it should make us a little bit uncomfortable. It should shake us up a little bit because if you've been a follower of Jesus Christ for any length of time, um, you either have or you will have times of silence where God feels distant times where you're looking around and saying, God, I don't see you in this. I don't see your hand. I don't see you coming to rescue me. I don't hear your voice. I don't sense your presence in my life. God, where are you? And so the question is, is 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 that God's judgment in our lives as well? What are we supposed to do with that? Is this God's judgment or is there something else that's going on? So let me give you a couple of verses to, to chew on here. Amos 8 11 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And so, what Amos is saying here, or actually what God is saying through Amos, is that look, there's judgment that's coming, but it's not going to look like the judgment that you're used to. I'm not going to withhold rain. I'm not going to withhold bread. I'm actually just going to withhold my word. I'm not going to communicate with you. God's silence can be judgment. I'll give you one more. Psalm 66, 18, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So if you turn this, sort of invert it, understand that, that when God doesn't listen, it can be because we are cherishing iniquity in our hearts. God's judgment can be silence. And so the question is, when we are in those times, and we're not hearing God, and we're not sensing His presence, then one of the first questions we need to ask is, what's going on with our own hearts? Where's my heart in all of this? Is there something I'm harboring in my life, some sin that I refuse to let go of? Is there an area of my life that I'm not listening to God? And so God says, hey, you're not listening. I'm going to quit talking to you. Good luck with that. Our first step when we encounter one of these situations is simply to say, okay, let's take a spiritual inventory. Where's my heart in all of this? Is there something that I've done or that I'm refusing being stubborn about that's keeping God from communicating to me? All right, but there are other times. There are other times when God is silent, when he is creating space between you and him in order to grow our faith. There are other times when God creates a certain amount of space. He creates distance. He allows there to be that distance. He goes silent for a time, not to punish us, not to judge us, but because he actually wants to grow our faith, that this is actually a loving act of a parent. So let me give you like a really imperfect analogy of this. Um, if, if I'm teaching my kid uh, to ride a bicycle— all right, um, and I'm holding on to the back and I've got kind of a hand on the pedals as well and we're going along, uh, they can very easily be- take me for granted, correct? <laughs> like I can keep running. Now, I- I'm very aware of what's going on. I'm running as hard as I can. I'm sweating profusely. And they're just like, yeah, dad's got me. It's all good. And they're just like cruising. Now, what happens when I let go? Hopefully they don't crash. But say I got to the point where I felt like, okay, I think they're doing pretty well. All right, don't judge me. and uh, And I take a step back, and I give a little bit of distance, suddenly they become keenly aware of just how dependent they are on dad, correct? Suddenly they're like, dad, 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 where, right? Where are you? They suddenly are keenly aware that they are very, very, very much dependent on God. Now where the analogy breaks down is this, that I actually want my kids to ride their bikes independently because I don't want to chase after them for the rest of my life, right? But God's lesson is always that we would actually increase independence upon him that we'd always have more faith in him. And so by creating this space, it's like, oh, yeah, remember, I'm dependent upon God. And then it's an invitation to trust him even in the silence. In fact, this is the pattern that we see in David's life, and he reflects this in the Psalms. Let me give you one example. This is all over the Psalms. I'm just going to give you one. Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? do you hear the faith? Do, do you catch that? See, even in the silence, notice what David's doing. He is complaining to God about God. He's not running away. He's not abandoning God. Okay, God, you're not listening to me. I'm going to go over here and find somebody else who will. God, you're not talking to me if I'm going to go find someone else who will talk to me. No, he says, God, you are the only one who can actually help me. God, I've got nowhere else to turn. I'm going to keep seeking you. God, I'm going to keep um, asking you for help so David complains to God about God. Some of you this morning, you may be in one of those dry seasons. You may be in one of those wilderness phases. And maybe it's been for a few days, maybe it's been weeks, maybe it's been months, even years. And you find yourself in these situations where, again, you're saying, where is God in all of this? And your act of faith may simply be to complain to God about God. And in that, to confess, God, you are the only one who can help me. You are the only one who can rescue me from this. Your voice is the only voice that I want to hear. I've got nowhere else to go. And God is honored in that. See, that's not Saul's response. Saul's faithless act is isn't to complain to God about God, no. Saul says, all right, God, you're not talking to me. I'm going to go find somebody else. See, Saul is not interested in a a relationship with God, not like David. David wants to know God. He wants to love God. He wants God's presence in his life. But for Saul, God is just a tool. God is just something to help him accomplish his goals. And so if God isn't working out, then he's going to go find help somewhere else. And in this case, it takes him to a very dark and unhappy place. So skip over to chapter thirty. And then Saul said to his servants, so remember, he's terrified. The Philistines are going to attack him. He doesn't know what's going to happen, and so God's not talking to him, so what's he going to do? Verse 7, then Saul said to his servant, seek out for me a woman who's a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, behold, there's a medium at indoor. All right? So since God is not talking to him, Saul goes to see the, quote, witch at indoor, and I can assume that she looks just like that. And she's surrounded by little people that look like that. She's the witch at Indore. Sorry, I I couldn't help myself with that. All right, let's keep going. All right, so verse 8. So Saul disguised himself. Listen to this. Listen to this. This is fascinating. Saul disguised himself, put on other garments, and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. Now notice the links that Saul is willing to go to further disobey God. I find this absolutely fascinating. So this this guy isn't like kind of sitting back and like I'm going to sin a little bit. No, no, he is proactive. He sends people to go find this witch, and then he gets disguised. And then if you remember the map, Endor is where just past where all the Philistines are camped out. So he actually disguises himself so that he can sneak past the Philistine camp to get to Endor. Like this guy will not be denied. He is ready to further alienate himself from God, and he won't. You can't stop him. You can't stop him. It's incredible. It's incredible, and it's also convicting because, look, this is what you and I do this all the time. And I think about this in my own life, that how easily I am thwarted from doing good. And yet when it comes to sin, man, you can only hope to contain me. You can't stop me. I mean, how easy it is for me to say, wow, I can't seem to find any time in my life to have, work on my relationship with my, with my God. I'm not going to read my Bible or pray, but when it comes to me time, when it comes to being selfish, I'm the master organizer. I can find all kinds of time. It's easy. I can't be denied. How easily we can be thwarted when it comes to doing good, when it comes to loving other people, when it comes to making that sacrificial move, and yet when it comes to being selfish, when it comes to thinking about ourselves, boy, we got that down. We got that down you can't stop us. You can only hope to contain us. That was for free. Let's keep going. Just something to think about. Verse eight. I already said that. Verse 11. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I'm in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. Saul says, Samuel, I'm I'm at a loss, man. you got to help me out here. So Samuel says, why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David." Moreover, verse 19, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hands of the Philistines. Okay, so we've got this crazy scene, right? We've got a witch, we've got this ghost Samuel coming up out of the ground, and we've got this conversation between Saul and Samuel. What's What do we make with this? What are we going to do with this? We live in a very enlightened and educated society, for the most part, and so there is a skepticism that we have about all things that are supernatural, so let me just say this. Um, When God warns us away from the occult and this type of supernatural evil, he doesn't do it because it's not real. He doesn't say, don't consult a medium or a witch or a psychic because it doesn't work. He says, don't do it because it does. There is a supernatural reality to our world that is beyond what we can see, but it is every bit as real as anything that we can taste, touch, and feel, and we would do well to remember that. Now, having said that, Having said that, let me put some parameters on this thing, okay? Um, when we talk about supernatural good and evil, we're not talking about the force. We're not talking about, like, the light side and the dark side. And they're, like, waging war. And it's kind of like these two heavyweights, God versus Satan, going toe-to-toe for 12 rounds. This is not a fair fight. In fact, it's not really a fight at all. In fact, when you look through Scripture, what you find is that God basically tolerates Satan to the degree that he allows Satan To upset anything that he wants to do. And so Satan is like this little yipping chihuahua going after a lion. That's probably doing a disservice to the chihuahua. (laughs) Satan doesn't even have that much power. Like, like God's like, okay, I'm going to give you permission to do this and this alone. Like, Satan only exists because God has not yet chosen the time where he's going to end him. This is not a fair fight. God wins walking away, it's no contest. And so what I don't want is anybody, if you're here this morning, is it the first time you've thought about some of this stuff? And you're like, wait, you're saying all that stuff is real? Like there's Satan and there's demons and all of that? Look, don't panic, all right? I'm not asking anybody to walk out of here and freak out. And everybody, suddenly, next time I see you've got your holy water and your crucifix and you're trying to ward off evil spells, that's not the response. The response to finding out that there is supernatural evil in the world isn't to panic, it's to be discerning. That, that what the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament is that we need to be aware of Satan, not terrified of him. That we need to be aware of his schemes. We don't want to be ignorant to all of the tricks that he's trying to pull. So let me just tell you that in our society today, and this isn't true all over the world, but where we live, Satan's primary trick, if you will, is very, very subtle. He wants to influence. He wants to tempt us in accordance, usually with our own sinful desires. And so we want to be aware of that so that we can defend against it. But that's not a reason to panic. That's a reason to be discerning. You tracking with me? So we're not panicking because as while we are no match for what Paul calls the supernatural spiritual uh, forces of darkness, we serve a creator God who no one is a match for. We serve a creator God in front of whom no one can stand apart from grace. And so even the spiritual forces of darkness... Even these angels that have rebelled against God, none of them can stand before him except by his permission. God always wins. And so this witch, this witch of Endor, she calls Samuel up from Sheol, the resting place of the dead, and Samuel actually comes out, which freaks her out. I love that. It's like, oh my gosh, this actually worked. But then Saul and Samuel have this whole exchange, and Samuel basically says, look, Saul, God is done with you. God is done with you. He's going to take the kingdom. He's going to give it to David. And oh, by the way, tomorrow you're going to be dead, just like me. And all of the army is going to get routed. The Philistines are going to have a field day. No one will survive, which is exactly what happens. So skip over to to chapter 31, verse 3. And the battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him. He was badly wounded by the archers. So basically, the, the battle goes badly. They're fighting against the chariots, and they realize they're getting routed, so they run for Gilboa And as best we can understand, when it talks about the archers, this is the Philistines raining arrows down upon them as they try to retreat. It's not a happy way to go. Verse 4, then Saul said to his armor-bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. Thus endeth the reign of Saul. So where's David in all of this? Where's David? If you turn the page to 2 Samuel 1, this is what we find out. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag, which was over in the Philistine area. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell on the ground and paid homage. And David said to him, where do you come from? And he said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. It's not happy news. So David wants to know more. A couple more verses. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the man who told him said, By chance I happen to be on Mount Goboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind me, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he would not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them all here to my Lord. All right, so... Real quick, you probably notice that this story sounds very, very different from the one at the end of 1 Samuel. So what, what's going on here? Uh, very simply, this guy is a liar. The Amalekite shows up and he sees an opportunity. Like he's out there, he's kind of watching the battlefield. He sees Saul die and he thinks, okay, if I grab that crown and I grab that armlet and I fabricate a story, I'm going to run over to David and I'm going to tell him this great story and David's going to reward me. It's going to be awesome. David's going to be so excited. He's going to celebrate. This is his plan. He's a liar. He's a thief. He's a profiteer. Now, here's what I want us to, to see for just a moment. Um, one of the themes throughout David's life, this is why this is so key. One of the themes uh, throughout David's life is this question, this tension of whether or not he's going to seize the crown for himself, whether or not he's going to seize the throne, or whether or not he's going to wait for God to give it to him. And so, time and time again, you see David presented with opportunities. Is he going to kill Saul, or is he not? To seize the throne for himself, or is he going to wait? And time and time again, David says, I'm going to be faithful right where I am. I'm going to be faithful to God. I'm going to honor God, and I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to wait this out. I'm going to wait for God in his timing to give me the throne. I think a lot of us need to hear that this morning. Um, because I think living in our society today where it's so, we're always being pushed to, to look for the next big thing, correct? And it's really, really tempting to try to push God along, to kind of press and try to seize what God isn't ready to give us. Instead of waiting and trusting and being faithful right where we are, to be all in right where God has us right now. And look, I'm not talking about being, um, uh, you know, apathetic or just passive in this. I'm not saying you should just sit back on your mom's couch and wait for, you know, somebody to walk in and hand you a lottery check. It's not what we're talking about. But there's a, I think there's a fundamental difference between um, being faithful to what God has called us, to be all in right here, and pressing for, being impatient for, trying to force God's hand instead of waiting for him to move. And, and listen, I, I get that because um, I, I know a lot of you, you're young guys and gals, and I, I, I've been there, um, and it's very, very tempting when you've got so much to prove and so much that you're looking forward to, you've got your whole life, And so you're thinking, man, I've got this job. I really want that job. I've got this career, and I really want this career. And then I want that that promotion. I really want that promotion. Or I I want that family, that marriage. And then I want kids. And then I want the kids to be potty trained. And then I want the kids to go to school. And then I want them out of school. And then I want them to come home, right? There's always something else, something else. And as somebody who, I'll just confess, I know that I've pushed and I've I've tried to help God along at times more than I should have. Um, There is great benefit. There is great blessing in simply being where you are recognizing that this is a gift from God, you don't know what the future holds anyway. And in that moment, to to be faithful to what God has called you to, it doesn't mean you don't pray for and anticipate what God might have next, but to be all there in the moment and then wait for God to do the next thing. See, this is what the Amalekite doesn't understand. See, he thinks that David is like the rest of us. He thinks that David would do anything he can to like move his career along. That he's greedy for advancement. If he can get the throne, then he's going to take the throne. And so the Amalekite comes up with this huge story, and he's like, "Okay, I'm going to tell David about how I killed Saul, and here's this crown, and David's going to be so excited. He's going to give me a big hug, and then he's going to give me a cabinet position in his government. I'm going to get this big reward. It's going to be awesome." But that's not how David plays. David is more interested in being faithful where God has him than climbing the regal ladder. And so David's response, I think it catches the Amalekite completely by surprise. Like there's no way he could have anticipated this. He weeps for Saul. Verse 11. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul, for Jonathan and his son, and for the people of the Lord, and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. I mean, you have to think if you're the Amalekite at this point, you're thinking, man, this plan is not going the way I anticipated. I thought we were going to have a party. Instead, David's like mourning, like what's going on here? This can't be good. Well, it gets worse for him. Verse 15, then David called one of the young men and said, go execute him whoops, and he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Again, you've got to think the Amalekite. He's got this great plan. I'm going to go. I'm going to tell David. It's all going to work out so well for me. And then suddenly they're, they're weeping. They're mourning. This isn't right. And then now he's going to kill me. Like, you got to think he's going, what is going on here? This is not at all what I anticipated. Why on earth would David be mourning Saul? Like, why isn't he excited about that? Why is he weeping for Saul? I mean, understand that, like, how shocking this is. I mean, even for you and me, even for you and me, like, why isn't David overjoyed? I mean, this is the moment he's been waiting for. He's finally free from Saul. Saul's been trying to hunt him down for how long now, and he's finally free to go home, and then he gets to become king. And understand, this isn't like this little cry that David has for Saul. No, if you keep reading, he writes a whole lament for Saul, for Jonathan, for the rest of Israel, and then he sends it out to the people of Judah and says, you need to learn this and sing this because we're all going to mourn for Saul together. Like, what on earth? Why? Why would Saul, excuse me, why would David weep for Saul? And here's what I want us to wrestle with this for the rest of our time right now is that, that David mourns for Saul because he cares. David mourns for Saul because he cares about Saul, about the people of Israel, and he cares about how sin has devastated their world. Let me unpack that so you can see what I mean. Um, Fast forward a few thousand years to Jesus, and he tells this story about a, um, a Pharisee, and he's praying next to a tax collector. And the Pharisee's prayer goes like this. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, what's the Pharisee's problem here? I mean, besides the fact that he's arrogant and he's blind to his own sin, and he's obviously a hypocrite and a jerk, right? Besides that, there's something else more subtle that's going on here. That while he sees the tax collector's sin, he doesn't weep for it. That while he sees and he's happy to condemn the tax collector's sin, he doesn't actually care about the tax collector enough to cry for him. He hates the sin, but he doesn't love the sinner. He's the guy who will protest gay marriage, but he would never actually care about or love someone who's actually struggling with same-sex attraction. This is the guy who will picket Planned Parenthood, but would never lift a finger to help one of the ladies going in there who doesn't know how to pay her rent, much less afford another child. This is the guy who does a little happy dance when people get what they finally have coming to them. This is the guy who condemns sin, but he doesn't love the sinner And his problem is our problem. That instead of genuine compassion for other people who are struggling with sin, we actually use other people's struggles for sin as props to our own ego. Man, they finally get what they deserve. Man, he had that coming. That we shake our heads in self-righteous disapproval and go on feeling good about ourselves because at least we're better than those people. But see, David, he weeps because he cares for Saul. And even though Saul got exactly what he deserved, even though he gets precisely what he had coming, David still weeps for him because he cares. See, the more you love, the harder you'll weep. The more you love, the harder you'll weep over sin and its effects. See, the reason that David weeps is because he loves He loves God. He loves Saul. He loves God's people. And when he sees what sin has done, he doesn't celebrate. Yay, I finally get the throne. No. He weeps. The more we love someone, the harder we'll weep over sin. See, there's this insane misconception in the world right now that, that if you love someone, then you actually don't care about them. Like, you shouldn't care about them. Like, if I actually love someone, then, man, if they're happy, then I'm happy. That's all that really matters. Like, I'm going to love someone. It doesn't matter what they do. I'm just going to let them do what they want. That's what love is. But that's not love. That's neglect. I mean, just think about how ridiculous that actually is. That that would be like if I told my kids, hey, if you want to play with matches, that's fine. Or throw rocks at each other's heads. Or turn one of you into a human pinata with a baseball bat and go after them. Like, all of which my kids have done, by the way. Like, evidently... I got all boys. Evidently, I don't love my kids enough because I keep trying to save their lives. I keep trying to keep them from killing one another. See, how absurd is it that we're told that that if we really love this world, then we're just going to sit by and let the world do whatever it wants. That if we really love the world, we'll sit there and let the world eat itself as it pursues blindly and boundlessly self-gratification and self-actualization to the exclusion of God. Like, how loving is that? See, the problem isn't that we love the world too much. The problem is that we love the world too little. The reason that we shrug at the divorce rate its just how it is. The reason that we, we don't mourn when our friends get caught up in, in sin. The reason that we don't weep when we find out that somebody falls prey to pornography again or we lose another life due to gun violence and it's insanity. The reason that that doesn't break our hearts isn't because we love the world too much. It's because we don't love the world enough. We become calloused. It doesn't break our hearts. If we really loved the world the way that God loves the world, then all it would, sin would break our hearts. Let me reframe this for a moment. God hates sin. You get that, right? I mean, I think we do sort of. But look, God has this intense fire of hate against sin. But understand, it's because he loves the world. He sees the effects of sin on the world that he loves and has created. And so he is out of this insatiable, unconquerable, unstoppable love for the world that then fuels this hatred for sin and anything else that would destroy what he loves. Do you follow on me? He loves the world so much that he cannot help but hate and mourn over sin and its effects. Now listen, I know that some of you are probably uncomfortable when we talk about hating anything in a church context, and I get that, because we are all very concerned, and I totally appreciate this, that we don't want to be like one of those churches that hates everybody. We don't want to be the Westboro Baptist churches of Kansas that peddle hate like drugs. Right? We don't want to be like them at all. Now, these are people who, and these are so-called churches, that frankly, they have so perverted the message of God that now they actually love sin as an excuse to hate people. They literally celebrate when sin destroys people's lives. And that kind of hatred is its ugly, it's vile, and it's anti-God. We do not want to be like them, and yet, we don't want to hate them either. We want to care about them, and we want to mourn for them. We want to weep over their sin. See there is this intense love for the world that God has that we're supposed to have this intense love for the world that actually produces sorrow that breaks our hearts when we see what sin does See that little sin that you got that I got we don't think it's any big deal man that sin that is a cancer it's a cancer and if it is left unattended, it grows, it festers, and it will eat your soul from the inside out. And we don't, we don't tolerate cancer. We don't love cancer. We don't make friends with cancer. We don't nurture it and kind of hang out with it and try to be friends with it. No, we cut that out. Even if it might kill us, we try to destroy it. And just like I grieve over cancer that ravages the life of somebody that I love, I grieve over sin that hurts the people I love. The more you love, the harder you'll weep. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, um, one of the most profound moments in the New Testament, I think, There's this amazing scene where Jesus, if you follow the book of Luke, he travels away from Jerusalem and he comes back. As he travels away from Jerusalem uh, and, and finds his way back, as he approaches the city, Luke says he sees the city and he weeps for it. And then he goes and dies for it and for the rest of the world. The more you love, the harder you'll weep. And that's what it means to have a heart after God's own heart. That's what it means to, to align our hearts with God, that we would love what He loves and we would hate what He hates, and what breaks His heart would break our hearts. So what are you weeping over? What breaks your heart? Because if nothing's breaking your heart, are you loving? What the world needs is not another church uh, that cares so little that we shrug off sin or that we do a little happy dance every time somebody gets what they finally deserve. And the world doesn't need us to shake our heads in disapproval and then go home and sleep well. What the world needs is for us to love it enough, to pray for it, to weep for it, and like Jesus, to die for it. What breaks your hearts? What breaks my heart? Uh, As as I've wrestled with this, um, even this morning, I just realized that it's so easy to become calloused. And we see this in in the world and we shrug and it's just how it is and we'll try to do our little bit. But the people and the people who really changed this world who I see God use in powerful ways? The people who weep.